0: Sports Business Radio launched in 2004. Brian Berger has interviewed the biggest names in sports and business. Let's step into the Sports Business Radio vault and look back on some of our favorite conversations. This week, we look back at Brian's interviews with Danica Patrick, host of the Pretty Intense podcast and an entrepreneur, and Molly Bloom, entrepreneur, podcaster, former U.S. ski team member, and the author of Molly's Game. Now, enter the Sports Business Radio vault. Now here's Brian's conversation with Danica Patrick from April, 2021.
1: My guest is Danica Patrick. She is the most successful woman in the history of American open wheel racing. She's the host of the pretty intense podcast, which you can find on iTunes or podcast platforms everywhere. Danica is joining us on behalf of power up premium trail mix. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter at Danica Patrick. Danica, thanks for joining me on sports business radio. How are you?
2: I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm doing really well. Um, When I think of one word to describe you, I I think of fearless. Hmm. You were racing go-karts at age 10 against adults. You moved away at age 16 to England. I have a 16-year-old daughter, and I can't even imagine putting her on a plane to move away to another country. And then you're an entrepreneur now, which takes a lot of bravery and, and guts. It's fearless and accurate adjective to describe you.
2: No, I don't think so. I think it has more to do, because I think everyone has fear. I think it has maybe a little bit more to do with your relationship with it and your perception and your sort of understanding of fear. Like, I get scared to do things too. I mean, my first instinct is scared. Like, I get scared to do a podcast when I do. I'm like, oh, my God, I've been, I don't want to look like an idiot to this person who's a legend, whoever I'm interviewing. Um, <clears throat> so, I I mean, I get nervous. I get concerned a little here and there, of course, like anyone. But um, I also know that on the other side of that discomfort is growth, and it's something that's super important to me. So And also joy, right? So, like, even in a race car, when you go out and you really push it, uh, you know, and you, you find the edge and you find the limit, you go faster and it's rewarding, or you have a tough race and you, you know, you get done and you feel so relieved. And so I think it's sort of, you know, there's like a really age old expression of, um, finding comfort in the discomfort. And so I think that, I think that fear is a lot of discomfort. And I feel like my whole life has been spent trying to find comfort in that discomfort.
1: It's interesting because, again, on the on the surface, you would go, wow, a 10-year-old competing against adults and go-karts, <laughs> moving to another country to race cars. And then I'm an entrepreneur as well. So being an entrepreneur, you've got to stare down failure in the face and say, I'm not going to fail. I'm going to succeed. So you've got to have some pretty brave, courageous traits to be able to do those things that I just mentioned.
2: Perhaps stubborn because it's not actually that it's not actually that you don't fail because there's a lot of failure on the way to success mm-hmm. um so it's not a matter of can't fail it's a matter of i am prepared to keep failing right because it's not who um, it's who keeps getting up and getting up and getting up and and ultimately there's information, in all the losses, there's information and in all the failures. And so if you can find the gems and grow from that and learn from that, then essentially you get to the point where you do start winning or you are successful and you, you come out on top. So again, it's kind of like your thought, for me, it feels like my thought process orientation with, with the failures, with um Fear with discomfort and just knowing that uh it's kind of, I guess maybe like it's like a little bit of a roller coaster, you know, you're kind of riding that sort of like, oh God, and then and then you kind of go, okay. But it's, I guess it kind of I look at it like because I'm kind of visual. So I look at it kind of like a ratchet ladder where it's like you kind of keep going up and up and up. And so I actually was just thinking about this today. I I just passing thought of the fact that my life—I've—I've—I've I've, I've said this for a long time—that my life changes in ways that I would never expect every couple of years, and <clears throat> that's a scary thought because you think everything that you have is what you want, and um, but it's—I realize now that it's because I say yes to growth, I say yes to progress, I say yes to evolving, and sometimes, almost every time, it means change. And so your life is going to look different when that happens.
1: Where does that come from? The resilience that you have and and saying yes and being able to ride the roller coaster and always bouncing back up for, for more challenges.
2: I would have said that that was something that is in me and I just have it. But then I had a friend, um, I was sitting down with her last year and we were having lunch and she's similar and, 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 able to cope and cope with stress. And, you know, like, I feel super grateful that, um, anxiety is not a part of my life. And I know that that's something that people struggle with. And, um, <clears throat> just this sort of like go like super aggressive, confident, fearless, um, uh, mindset and this strength. Maybe strength is like the, the kind of nicer encompassing word. And she pointed out, she's she did ballet. She was a ballerina. And she pointed out how tough that world is and how tough my world was and how early we did it, how young we were when we did it. So I guess that gave me a little bit of a new perception of my strength because I've been practicing that and put in tough situations since I was 10. Mm. So, you know, I feel like, you know, I I think there's, you know, somebody might have had a a more softer sort of upbringing something with maybe even more like, you know, tenderness, coddling even, whatever, something that allows them some comfort and protection and i think that when you're thrown in the deep end you got to figure it out and so i just learned how to do that really early and <clears throat> i'm grateful for that i'm grateful for everything all my all all the things that have happened all the of course the good because it's easy to be grateful for the good but all the bad too because i feel like um i feel like it's me you know it's really made me into who i am and also there's a season for everything like Like, you know, there's a season for working. There's a season for relationships. There's a season for like being really joyful. There's a season for, you know, just stressing about something. There's just like seasons like there are in real life and nature, right? There's just seasons for things. And so I think that the things that I've dealt with that are tough have really served me well. And it's not a matter of sort of dismissing them or getting rid of them or not wanting them to be a part of it. It's going, okay. that season's over with and it's time for a new one
1: a lot of athletes I've talked to on this show over the years, during their career, some of them get the fact that they're auditioning for their next career, right? You're building the relationships for when you're not competing anymore. Others wait till the end and they're like, okay, now I got to think about what I'm going to do next. Do you strike me as someone who was thinking about the next phase of your life during your racing career? Is that correct? And, and if so, What did you do to try and lay the groundwork for some of the things that you're doing now?
2: Bobby Rahal told me a long, 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 long time ago uh, that he just not spend all my money, number one. And number two, he said that he always wanted to make sure that he could maintain the same kind of lifestyle after racing as he had during. And so uh, that sort of planted the seed of other businesses and, and the fact that there's, I actually, it's not really, for me, it was a little bit of a twist on it because I felt I very fortunate. I did really well. Um, but it was more a matter of using the platform when I had it to start sort of like, to like, let that sort of, um, roll into the next thing or use that as an opportunity to show what I was doing next. And so, um, so that's kind of how i how I used it. but I just I really like doing and I like i like I like um growing, I like learning, I like helping, I like being inspiring. so really, all of my businesses are rooted in 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 some sort of form of inspiration um, at their core, which I've always felt like it's really important to have businesses that have long-term like long far out their goals because if it's to interview someone in particular or if it's to make X amount of money or what whatever that may be that's a really that has an end point and a ceiling essentially at least in my mind. And so I like having I like orienting the things that I'm doing uh, around, uh, what's the right word? Um, a mission as opposed to an endpoint. Mm,
1: I like that. I want to talk about your pretty intense podcast. <laughs> I love it. I've become addicted to it. It's in my rotation. Now. Uh, I love the episode with Amy Lee from Evanescence. Thank you. Uh, Gary V was fantastic fellow entrepreneur. Um, I just think it's a deeply psychological podcast and don't take offense to this, but while you were racing, I heard you interviewed, but I'm seeing a different side of you now and a much deeper side of you now via your podcast. And I love the conversations you have and I find them therapeutic as well. So um, every time I'm done with one of your podcasts, I feel like I've learned three or four new things that I didn't know before or that can help me in my life. And, and frankly, with this podcast, which I've been doing for 17 years, that's one of the things I try and do with our conversations is I want our audience to leave with a few tangible takeaways that they can apply to their life immediately. And they feel like, wow, that was worth listening to.
2: Yeah. The gems. It's like, I, I haven't just a simple saying, it's not mine, it's Ram Dass's, but it's we're all just walking each other home. Mm-hmm. And I really feel that's true. And so I'm so grateful that you said that. Thank you. I I, I truly just enjoy people. I'm fascinated by them. Actually, if anyone asked me what I would have done if I wasn't a race car driver, many times I've said I would have been some kind of psychologist or a shrink or whatever you want to call them, a therapist. And um, because I'm fascinated with people as well as like, figuring things out and so helping people and like how to get how to feel better how to be how to be living better and happier and so um so i i i do i do psychoanalyze my guests a little <laughs> that's
1: good i do, i do too and i think a good podcast host is naturally curious right and, and you're trying to put yourself in the seat of your listeners yeah. So that you're hopefully asking some of the questions that your listeners would want to hear from the guest, but walk me through your process. What's Danica Patrick's process when preparing for a podcast? Yes.
2: Um so it's kind of had a little bit of an evolution because at first um it was a little there was a little more more people involved and I've streamlined it and partly because I found that I didn't really need as much um but I would I I now my process is: I used to get like 15 pages from a from a, a researcher, and I'd go through as really good, a lot of great information, and um, I'd circle as I went along and write notes in the margin, and then I'd go back over all my pages and kind of formulate uh, like the best. I would pick the best topics that I was interested in, and then I would start to organize a flow for it, and. <clears throat> then write those out. And so I'd write it all out and then rewrite it again on a little note card. So by the time I read it, organized it, wrote it once and then wrote it again, I don't usually need it. Um, but that was kind of the long version of how I used to prepare. Now I find that I have more trust and tell me if you, this, you can relate to this, but there's um, like really listening to the words being said so that cuz there's always a question in the information that they're giving there's there's naturally another level of curiosity a layer deeper or something um something uh, a branch off of it um so i trust that flow a little bit more than i used to um i just never wanted to get into a position with someone where i sat there and went <clears throat> so Uh, what do you um what's next? You know, like I mean, I just can't be I feel so bad. I have I feel like I try and put myself to a pretty high standard for my interviews because I've been interviewed so many times and I, I, you know, know what I like and don't like and know what's appropriate and not. Um, so a couple of two rules that I just don't do in my interviews um is I just I don't dig into the stuff that isn't appropriate or that I know that they wouldn't want to go into. And I just try and not a- ask typical questions, right? And so, yeah, um, uh, so those are sort of my two general rules for myself. Um, and now I, I pretty much listen to a podcast. Like if I, I just search their name and like Apple, like iTunes, you know, Apple Podcasts, yes, and I just, I just go in and I find whatever they've done recently. I listen to one and I make notes. Sometimes I'll listen to another one. Sometimes I'll just. Google or research some information, but generally with one podcast, I can usually extract enough topics that I'm curious about. Um, And it's not that I'm asking the same question that's being asked in the interview. It's that they've said something in their answer that is pertaining to how I like to do my interview. And I'm like, oh, I know they're willing to go there. And so then I kind of write that down. So um, there's a lot of information in a podcast as you you know like listening to them right. There's just so many gems, and so that's kind of how I prepare now. Sometimes I, I I do like to always create a flow. I find that um, I don't usually need it, but I like to be prepared with let's say either like five topics that I can naturally transition through, or like ten questions. And those sort of ten questions, um, they you know they're they're just a guide, um, but you know, lots of conversations just go all over the place. But it's it's really like what it, Lewis House told me a long time ago based on someone that gave him advice is he mm-hmm. said, someone told him, he's like, what if I'm not interesting? He's like, no, no, no. He's like, you don't have to be interesting. You just have to be interested. And I was like, oh, that's so good. And so between that and listening to, uh, listening to understand versus listening to respond, is another one that is really helpful in the process so yeah it's come it's it's come along i look at guys like um i mean you've been doing this for 17 years so you might be the og of podcasting oh, you've been doing it for 17 years i've been years. doing it a long time wow um but i look at guys like you know joe rogan and people who sit there and talk to just all kinds of different people for right. who you know two plus hours and i'm like you know that's next level kind of stuff Um, and so intelligent. But that's, I don't know if you find this too, but in in doing this so many interviews, like you learn so much.
1: Right. And I think people want to know you did your homework a little bit, right? So it's not the car wash as I call it, where tell me about your book or tell me about your latest project where anyone could ask that question. So do your homework. And then I think you do a really nice job of even if you don't know the person, like we're talking for the first time right now. We've never had a conversation before. You do a nice job of making your audience feel like you've known this person, and you know there's a good rapport there because sometimes it can be an awkward conversation. But I don't get that when I listen to your interview. Some people I can tell that you've been friends with them for a while and you've known them, and there's a, a friendship or a rapport there. But other people some of the experts you've had on your show that you don't have a relationship with, it still sounds like a comfortable conversation. And that's the thing about podcasting. I used to be in radio. Radio, you got to take breaks every 10 minutes and it's very structured and podcast conversations could go on for 90 minutes or two hours or however you want. And it's very conversational and free-flowing and organic versus, okay, this is an interview and we have to check all these boxes during the interview and but I just like the listening format a lot better.
2: It's kind of how we speak, right exactly My podcast is basically how we speak. So it you really feel like you're in the room in a conversation or sitting listening to two people on a couch you know like you because it's the way that you'd speak if you were sitting around at home and so um or you know, out to lunch or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, the podcast world is obviously blown up. And it has. And I'm glad because I, I remember when I first, I was promoting my book back at the beginning of 2018, and um, and I only did a few interviews. I did Joe Rogan, I did Rich Roll, and I did Lewis Howes. I think were like the three podcasts I did, which are great, big mm-hmm. podcasts. Right. And um, I had never done any. And, of course, at first I'm thinking to myself, like, how long am I going to be, how long is this interview? Like, and then after I did them, I was like, that's a lot of fun. Actually, I would rather do a couple of those a day than bounce around in and out of a car to do a five to seven minute segment in a studio. Um, So, yeah, I think that it's, I'm so glad that people are resonating with the long format because, um, you know, it's just, so much deeper and more informational and i love that there's a hunger out of people that they are wanting that because to me it tells it's it's a it's it's growth. it's that you're you you know you're 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 able to keep your attention on something for an extended period of time and also like really learning and, and getting into a conversation um so i'm glad
0: you're listening to sports business radio We'll be right back after this. Talent, hard work, focus, and
1: determination got you here. Now take the right steps to prepare for your future and ensure that you stay at the top of your game, your business, your craft. Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment is a division of Morgan Stanley Wealth Management dedicated to serving the unique and sophisticated needs of elite And professional athletes, entertainers, executives, creators, and other top talent and professionals in the sports and entertainment industry. They deliver the education, strategies, and expertise you need to help advance your financial game plan at every stage of your career journey. They speak the language, they know your business. Morgan Stanley will work with you to achieve your goals. I've trusted Morgan Stanley with my personal wealth management for almost 20 years. Visit Morgan Stanley at MorganStanley.com backslash G-S-E. Now, back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Well, I binged your, your podcast in preparation for this um. conversation. And then I'll tell you, I listened to one of my favorite podcasts I've listened to in a long time, You and Your Sister on Sibling Rivalry with oh. Oliver and Kate Hudson. Yeah. Because <laughs> I have siblings as well, and I always think like, what would it be like if I did a podcast with them, with my siblings? And you know, I learn a lot about you. And and like I said, at the beginning of this conversation, I feel like via your podcast, I've learned more about you and just listening to those than I did during your career. And it's not any offense about, but like you said, you would do five to seven minute interviews. You'd do quick radio hits. It wasn't a deeper conversation. So Kudos with the Pretty Intense podcast. I think it's fantastic. I'm always anxious for the next episode to come out, to listen to it. And uh, you know, there's a lot of people that have tried podcasting post-career. I'll be honest with you. Some of them do a good job and some don't do a great job. I think you do an out- outstanding job. So,
2: Oh, man, that's really cool of you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll keep doing a couple more episodes. I, I'm interviewing Alanis Morissette on oh, Wednesday. So wow. I'm excited for that just because she's been always like a, a an all-time favorite of mine. But I've been lucky enough to interview some really cool people. So you know what it's like. It's like, who am I talking to? You right. like so cool
1: yeah it is cool because again being curious and just wanting to be curious about talking to that person I think is is great I saw Alanis Morissette's first arena show I live in Portland Oregon so she did her first arena show in Portland and it was really funny because you know she's just like this badass woman and has all this energy but before the show she's like walking around backstage with a teddy bear and she was really quiet and then she gets on stage and it's just electric and you're like, oh my God, she's so quiet in her normal life but on stage, she's just like this power player. It, it was really, it was cool to see. But that I had think been back in the like Jagged Little Pill days. Though. It was. It, it was 1995. It was her very first arena show. Yeah. So, true. yeah, she's done a lot since then. Well, congrats on it's that. Had a lot of great music come through. Yeah, Portland has had a lot of great music come through and a lot of people like start you know, kind of in this area and in Seattle. So yeah. kind of interesting. All right. I want to talk about some of the other things that you're doing. Uh, you are a wine connoisseur and mm-hmm, that's yeah. not an easy business either. And you've got to be brave to get into that business because it's competitive. And, you know, a lot of people can just stick their name on a label, but you've really been involved in, in your wine brand. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about
3: that.
2: Yeah. Well, there's two now. So, um, it started off with Somnium, which means dream in Latin. Right. Um, and uh, it's because I just I was in Napa Valley drinking drinking swirling some white wine at ten AM because you can. And I thought, man, it'd be so cool to have like something like this someday. And <clears throat> that's why I called it Somnium because it was just a dream at that point. Like it was just an idea. And so it's really cool to look at these projects and think, Oh my God, that was just an idea. Like that's all it was in my head. And so um so I bought the property in 2009 and planted the vineyard and started from scratch and um and so that finally a, bo- a bottle was finally for sale in 2017. The 14 vintage was for sale in 2017. So that that was a long project. Yeah. And but the but the cool thing is is it really led into the next one which was um one that launched last year called Danica Rose. Mm-hmm. And um and so that's a grown and made in Provence, France, Rose. Um man, we've had a really cool promotion that keeps getting put off every year. We were supposed to launch, well, over a year ago at Monaco at the oh, Grand Prix. Wow. wow with the yacht wow. and the whole thing. And and then it was supposed to be this year and then that got canceled again. And, um, but anyway, it's been a really cool project. So um, I've got really good partners with that one. And um, so that's growing really fast. Um, So yeah, I mean, people ask me, why are you in the wine business? And my answer is really simple. And that's just that I like to drink it.
1: When someone comes to you with an idea for a partnership or an endorsement, or when you're thinking about starting a, a wine company, what are the elements that you need to see in order to say, you know what? Yeah, I'll I'll sign on the dotted line and and I'll be your partner or I'll start this business.
2: Mm. Well, the first one I've spent a lot of, it's all my own money and I've spent a lot of it. And um, so it's a long game project, Mm. it's passion. Um, Really the core of it is like getting back to like, there's a there's a dot on the top and it's a like a you are here like in a hotel room or somewhere like marking the spot and it's sort of a, a trigger to hopefully get you to read the back label and then remember because it's an impact label, but to be present and so really the message and the feeling is to be present with the company you're with and share and um and um really connect with the people people around you uh and so you know that that is really. Uh, that was my baby, and then the Danica Rose project was a a few guys that got together that were you know they were interested in making making wine, and so we made we decided ma- making some rose and and as far as me being involved, it's like I couldn't think of a more authentic thing to do than make rose in front in France. Like it's the hometown of Provence is where rose it's like the birthplace of rose. So you know, I just think that that for me is so parallel with me as a brand just being authentic. So um, that was, you know, but we're all partners. We're all equal partners. And we, you know, we we put in the effort. And I mean, I feel like, you know, maybe some put in more than than others, like uh, the guy who's out there, you know, getting it sold and everything. But um, But we all play our part, you know, a critical part. So... Um, I guess, you know, when it comes to making a decision on what to do, it's like, it's all roots and sort of passion and curio- curiosity and interest. Like, are you really actually into it? And then do you feel like you have a good team around you?
1: Our uh, premium trail mix. They're a partner of ours. I know you're one of their endorsers. What led to you wanting to work with them? I love their trail mix. And then frankly, I didn't know the difference between premium trail mix, the really healthy stuff. and the stuff filled with candy until I started eating their trail mix.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I remember hearing just how the nuts are even prepared, like the fruits and the nuts, just there's different, just like with anything, like there's a doctor that went to, you know, um, where do doctors go to
1: medical school?
2: Harvard. No, that's law. Princeton, Yale. Yeah. That whatever. Right. Those doctors, and then there's doctors that come out of somewhere that you've never heard of. Right. And yet they're all doctors, right? And so it's right. like trail mixes, it's like there's ones that come out of, you know, the top echelon sort of productivity and and processes. And then there's ones that are not as good. And or maybe you wouldn't know about them. They're smaller. Um, and so uh, actually, usually the problem is they're bigger sometimes. Um, but I, I feel like when I heard about just how the high quality process that was used for for the trail mixes i was like wow i had no idea and since health is so important to me i was like this is um a really great company in total alignment with my um core values and um and then just use like truly you eating them and using it and grabbing the little to-go bags when i'm traveling and um shoot at thanksgiving or christmas i made like you know, almond bark bars, like white chocolate, almond bark bars with one of the, one of the trail mixes. So, um, I just really, I really, I, I'm fortunate enough in my career where I don't have to align with people that aren't in alignment with, with me and my values. So, um, power up is a really easy decision.
1: Are you a cook? Do you like to cook? And, and yeah, I love uh, it. Do you have a good setup for your, uh, your kitchen and everything? And
2: Oh yeah, what's your
1: go-to? What's the go-to, Danica Patrick? uh, If if you have company coming over, family, friends, whoever, and and you're going to make your best thing, what is it going to be?
2: I don't know. I mean, I guess you know. To be honest, I do make a pretty good steak. I know that sounds really silly. It's I don't usually go out to eat for stuff like that because I can make it so well. Um, But I mean, probably like just something simple. I I really I also follow a pretty much paleo diet, so. I, um, I I mean, that limits a lot of things, um, but I mean, I'll make like steaks and salmon and some roasted vegetables and some kind of potato of some sort, maybe roast those too, or shoot, you can like wedge up sweet potato, put it on the grill. I mean, that works too. I mean, there's just, I, I cook really simply, but it ends up being a lot about texture and food and, and flavor combinations.
1: I follow you on social media. We said earlier Danica Patrick on Instagram and Twitter. Some of your workouts that you do, my God, like you're your core. I ride the Peloton and Mm -hmm. and you know, I hike and things like that. But I'm watching some of your workouts and they're they're next
2: level. So I'm impressed. Thank you. Well, I, you know, I, I do like I love fitness. I love working out. Like I I truly just like it. Like I get excited to work out. And as soon as I write down a workout, it happens. It's like um it's like an automatic manifestation technique in the gym. Like just write down the workout and go. But here's where most people get stuck: they don't know how to write a workout. And so, um, but I started doing CrossFit, which I just really love and enjoy. Um, probably back in 2013, and <clears throat> I don't do pure CrossFit, but I do a lot of CrossFit, and um, uh, I just, I just think it really gives you good tools to not only show show how to build a workout but also um and there's also so many resources for that too websites programs instagram accounts um but also uh, it shows you what real working out is and it should hurt and it's painful and you get really you don't just get out of breath you are like lying laying on the ground when you're done so i like that
1: i mean can you please tell our audience once and for all and i think most people know this but being in a race car like you were, you have to be in incredible condition and your core has to be so strong because you're, you're in that car for hours and you're going so fast. Like it really does take, you have to be in incredible shape. Mm.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, most people, you know, I mean, there's, there's definitely other sports that peak in other ways, but sure, keep your focus. I think that one of the things that we like overlook in general is just the you know, the mental capacity and the focus. And, and whenever the body starts to distract, um, through pain or, uh, fatigue or discomfort, you're pulling from the mental side of things. So, um, there's probably very, very few sports that actually keep you have to keep you, you have where you have to stay focused for four hours, you know? Right. I mean, even under caution, you know, you're saving fuel and doing all kinds of things. You're making pit stops. So there's really not a lot of time to relax. Um, so uh, no timeouts. So, um, so I think that, uh, I, I just, it's really important to be hydrated, really important to have good focus. It's really important to have upper body strength neck. I mean, yeah, actually i this is funny. I was, I went skiing for the very first time about a month ago okay. and I was going down the Hill and it was like a tough blue. And I, I was like, my first, it was like, I had taken two lessons and then day three was like, I'm at it. And, um, so I'm going down and I just yard sail it. Like I just, I just fly off the handlebars. And yard sail it. I love that. Yard sail it down the mountain. <laughs> and my head like whipped back really hard. And I woke up the next day and I was like, oh man, I haven't had neck pain like this since I Went to Sebring for the first test of the year in an Indy car every year because it seems like an in Indy car. We'd always go to Sebring or somewhere like that in Florida um, and go, you know, get in a car for the first time of the season and the acceleration and deceleration and lateral loads. Are, lateral loads not so bad because you have heads around, but like vertical, like forward and backwards under braking and acceleration, like your neck would, you know remember what I had to do again and it'd be painful. So it took a skiing accident for me to remember just like what it took for neck strength. But yeah, there's lots of little things with, um, with driving that, uh, you know, you need to be really strong and have a lot of endurance for.
1: Before I let you go, uh, I see by following you on, on social, you're doing some traveling and some adventures and trying things like skiing for the first time. What's next for you, whether it's business-wise or just what lies ahead? Because, you know, it seems like you're in such a great position right now. You've got this blank canvas and you can paint it however you want.
2: Well, I mean, there's a lot of new stuff going on. I mean, the podcast isn't that old. So, you know, you know, this summer will be two years, but um, still doing that and enjoying it. And um, the, you know, the new wine that l- launched last year, Danica Rosé, as well as Somnium, Um, then there's some other projects in the works. Um, I think that, you know, getting into, I'd really like to try to transition some of the, some of the techniques that I've learned through interviewing people into maybe doing, um, special specials with, I think, you know, pairing an athlete me with athletes is a, is a good thing. I mean, it could go with anything, um, as I actually interview mostly not athletes on the show, but, um, I think it's a good way to Retap that audience um, that followed for so long, and also then um, be able to use some new, new, new skills. So doing like special features and things like that around big events, I think would be really cool. Um, but then you know, there's a show in the works that's based on you know women and the things that they've accomplished, and and me hosting that. So uh, that's in the works right now. So yeah, there's always there's always something going on.
1: Danica Patrick. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Danica Patrick. She's joining us on behalf of Power Up Premium Trail Mix. Make sure to listen to her podcast, Pretty Intense, on iTunes and podcast platforms everywhere. Danica, it's been a pleasure. Continued success to you. And uh, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being so prepared. I appreciate it.
1: You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Underdog Fantasy is the easiest place to play fantasy sports. It's also the fastest growing fantasy app in the industry. Your fantasy leagues might be over, but you can still play fantasy sports games on Underdog Fantasy. I love playing Pick'Em and Rivals. With Pick'Em, you can pick whether your favorite players will have a higher or lower stat total in this week's game for a chance to win big. You can win 20 times your money in a single night. You pick between two and five players to build a pick entry. Also, Rivals pits two players against each other. That's a lot of fun, too. It could be two players on the same team. It could be two players from other teams. Points, rebounds, fantasy points. It's a lot of fun. I'm enjoying that with NBA games especially right now. Sign up today with promo code SBR and get your first deposit doubled up to $100. Visit underdogfantasy.com Or find them in the app store and don't forget to register with my promo code SBR, like Sports Business Radio, to get your first deposit doubled up to $100. Must be 18 plus and present in a state where underdog fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play? Call 1-800-522-4700 or visit www.ncpgambling.org.
0: Now, here's Brian's conversation with Molly Bloom from January, 2022.
1: My guest is Molly Bloom, author, podcaster, entrepreneur, and subject of the book and movie Molly's Game. Molly has one of the most remarkable stories of any guest I've interviewed on this show in 18 years. In fact, her story is so amazing, Erin Sorkin actually turned it into a movie. You can follow her on social media at I am Molly Bloom. Molly, thanks so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you?
3: What an intro, Brian.
1: (laughs) Like I said, I mean, your story, I've seen the movie, I've read the book. It's just when I think of one word to describe you, it's resilient. I mean, you have had the kitchen sink thrown at you in your life (laughs) and you just keep coming back and coming back. And uh, I just think it's remarkable.
3: Thank you very much.
1: You told me uh, when I reached out to you that you're expecting a baby in a month. So let's start with how are you feeling?
3: (laughs) Well, I've definitely felt better in my life. I'm super (laughs) excited. Um, we've got three weeks to go and it feels like I've been pregnant for three years, but I'm so excited. I mean, it was a tough road to get here and I, you know, I, life's about to change.
1: Yeah. But it's going to change for the better.
3: I think so. I think so. But, um, you know, like just, it's, it's such a, it's such a huge thing. And, and, It's one of those things that you can't prepare for. And I'm like such a research junkie. I like to be very prepared for things. And so I got all the gear, but, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm a dad. So it's exactly what you just said. You can do all the prep in the world that you want. And there's going to be things that happen. And you're like, I never saw this coming or I prepared (laughs) and it still happened anyways. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would just say. Keep uh, keep uh, flexible and and your resilience is going to help you because, uh, you know, there's going to be challenges along the way. And I want to start there because you grew up in such a high achieving family. And I know, you know, for myself, I've taken some of what I learned from my parents and some of it is like, hey, great, I'm going to use that in life and other mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to do it the same way. Uh huh. <laughs> so as you're getting ready to enter motherhood, like what have you learned from this high achieving family of yours that you want to bring with you to motherhood?
3: Yeah, I, I've thought a lot about that. Um, you know, my, my parents parented from very distinct positions. My dad was be in the pursuit of excellence all the time. Um, did not play a victim role ever. Don't let fear uh, sideline you. And my mom was, be kind, your name and your reputation matters, um, you know, have integrity. And they were both really passionate about that. And I think both of those things really shaped and molded us. Um, and so I definitely want to emulate that stuff. I don't know if I'll be as intense as my dad was necessarily, <laughs> but, um, but I think that the fundamental lessons that he imparted were awesome and made us better. Um, And I think, you know, something he says all the time is he says, you have to love your kids enough to not always be their best friend, you know, to, to, to prepare them for life is not always the most popular thing to do. And and that really resonates.
1: So in one of your Twitter posts to your dad on Father's Day, you thanked him for constructive suffering in order to achieve (laughs) excellence. And, you know, again, I'm a dad. And Mm -hmm. I I really uh, took interest in what does that mean? What is constructive suffering?
3: I think it's the work that you have to do to become excellent at anything. It's the discipline. It's the moving outside of your comfort zone. You know, we we were really taught that, you know, when you're going out and it's below zero and you're on the mountain and you're skiing moguls, which is a ridiculously painful sport on for anyone, and you know you're falling over and over and over and over again. It's easy to let your mind tell you this is stupid. Why would I do this? I'm just hurting myself. You know, I'm just it, this is painful. But you know, we were really we were really instructed that 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 type of suffering is constructive and leads to new skills. You know, for, further intelligence if you're talking about academics and 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 that getting pounded into our head that being uncomfortable is part of life and it's part of achievement, I think is really important because it's really easy to just buy into those messages, especially as a kid, that this is hard and I don't want to do this. But to to ride through that, to stick with it, and then see what's on the other side at a young age was you know, tra- transformative.
1: How much of your competitiveness comes from – You had these two high achieving brothers as well. And you know, clearly the movie and the book brings that out.
3: Yeah. I think it was a nature and nurture. I think I came into the world who who I was. I mean, I remember even before sports were a big deal, we'd have those field days at at school where you have the day off and you just do fun races. And I'd be like, up the night before puking (laughs) because I wanted to win, you know? Um, and then as we got older and Sports and academics and and basically anything that could have a competitive nature uh, was interpreted like that. And my brothers, you know, my brother Jordan is an absolute genius, Harvard professor, cardiothoracic surgeon at Massachusetts General. Jeremy was an athletic phenom, you know, number one in the world in skiing at 18 years old. And so to say the bar was high is 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 really (laughs) understating it. So the competitive nature combined with my dad's sort of like, you know passion for competition and and then also these these two little brothers who are just phenoms um was you know quite a formula
1: well the other part of your story too and this is what i think may be most remarkable of all is when you were younger you had this excruciating back surgery and most people after that surgery molly they're like you know what I'm taking it easy. You know, maybe I'll do some jogging or I'll ride a bike. You pick mogul skiing. <laughs> like you just said, it It kicks your rear constantly. What were you thinking?
3: It was because it was such a fundamental part of our family. You know, we, that's what we did. We were mogul skiers and I couldn't see any other way, even though I had just had 12 vertebrae in my, in my spine fused and two metal rods and, and, you know, doctors and coaches and parents were like, no, maybe this isn't, you know, this isn't the right move for you. I just, I couldn't see not being part of that. You know, you're 12, so you just don't know. (laughs) Like if I had that surgery now, you wouldn't see me on the moguls. That's for
1: sure. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So fast forward to the Olympic trials and you have this horrific skiing accident that essentially ended your career. Walk our audience through people who may not have seen the movie or read the book. What happens between the end of your skiing career and fast forward, you're you're running these card games, $250,000 buy-in, people are winning and losing a hundred million dollars. Your life went from, I'm a competitive skier to I'm running the most expensive card games in the world.
3: Yeah. I mean, I had, a, I had a plan, right. And I, and I, I just didn't think that there was anything that was going to, deter my plan. My plan was to make the U.S. ski team, which I did, to go to the Olympics um, and then to go to law school. And, you know, I I really thought that was it. I thought I knew what what the rest of my life was going to look like at 18. When skiing didn't work out, I decided I was going to take a year off between going to law school because I just wanted to like relax and be a kid and, you know, be warm. So I went to L.A. And I, you know, I didn't just go to LA. I went to LA reeling, you know, heartbroken, pissed off at life, uh, kind of primed for a rebellion. And so when one of my jobs became serving drinks at this high stakes poker game with these people who I'd only seen on, on television and and read about in newspapers, and it, you know, it's not just the A-list celebrities, it's, heads of some of the biggest investment banks, politicians, uh, people who just, you know, had unicorns in the tech space. And and it was, God, it was an incredible access to information and capital and power in, the, in this world that I had never seen. And I thought, um, I don't just want to serve drinks in this room. Like I want to, I want to own this room. Imagine the power, the access I could have if I owned these games. And that's kind of how it started. A, a bit of a, a rebellion and then um and then also just this fascination with a world unlike anything I'd ever seen,
1: so um, I would have to imagine that you know you talk about being an entrepreneur, <laughs> that's like the fast track master class to becoming an <laughs> entrepreneur. You're going from oh, I'm serving drinks at these games to I'm running the games and eventually serving as the bank with people winning and losing a hundred million dollars in a night, right.
3: Yeah, no. And I, you know, that was a that was also a great discovery that oh, okay, this is what I'm good at. I'm I'm good at being an entrepreneur. I'm good at thinking on my feet and and structuring things and not having a roadmap and figuring it out. Because I really didn't know what I was good at. Like I was headed to law school because at the dinner table my dad said, "You like to read and argue. Maybe you should be a lawyer." <laughs> so that was, you know, that was the the genesis of it and i just didn't consider it i'm like okay so that's what i should do so i mean there's something very exciting about the freedom
1: how intoxicating was it as you kept going along and again you've got all these powerful people coming to your card games in la and eventually new york walk us through that process of i mean in the movie it looks like it got to a point where maybe it got a little bit out of control
3: (laughs) Yes, it did. Um, but yeah, I mean, intoxicating is the perfect word. I was 25 years old. I was making millions of dollars um, and, you know, sort of had all this access and was learning about all these different sectors from the people who ran them. Like that to me, you know, I've always been, um, I've always always been a learner and an information junkie and just to be able to get those insights and learn about things was also extremely compelling and in the beginning i think i had my feet on the ground you know i was like i'm going to make a bunch of money i'm going to create this network and then i'm going to leverage this into something else you know cut to like 8 years later i'm still in it and i i've completely lo- like lost that sort of clarity as to who i was and what i was doing because it was no longer about let me be a scrappy entrepreneur and 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 get this education and then do something smarter. It was like, I want more money. I want more games. I want more power. I don't ever want to be part of a normal life. It's fine living at night. It's fine staying up for three days at a time. You know, I had completely become someone different and there was just, I, I could have said it because I knew it sounded like the right thing to say that, you know, I'm, I'm next year, I'm leaving next year. I'm leaving. But if I'm being honest I was never
1: leaving. I would have been up all night just being worried about being the bank. (laughs) 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 But, you know, you, you said, you know, you were taking pills, you were drinking, you were trying to avoid the Italian mob who in the movie, if it's true, and I have no reason to believe it's not, they eventually caught up with you and, and physically assaulted you in your apartment. This is really crazy stuff, Molly. Yeah, no, I
3: know. It's so crazy. You know, being, being, 10 years out from it. And, and even telling the story is insane, but yeah, that absolutely happened. You know, this guy came into my apartment, he put a gun in my mouth, he God. beat me up. Um, he took everything out of my safe and before he left, he said, you know, we'll be in touch. And if you tell anyone about this, we know where your family lives in Colorado. I mean, it was absolutely terrifying and I was, com- you know, I could call the cops. I couldn't tell anyone. I was completely alone in it. Uh, it was so dark. It had gotten so dark.
1: So, how in that moment do you go forward? Because again, that's enough to like end a lot of people and, and you know, just put them into a downward spiral. How did you come out of that?
3: Well, I was in the downward spiral for sure. But I, I and I lucked out of that one because what happened is a couple of weeks later, uh, I guess there was the, the biggest mob related takedown in New York City history that they, they arrested 125 people. And I never heard from those guys again, um, and I just kept running games.
1: So, at what point do you say, "All right, I can't run games
3: anymore"? Well, it took it. It took a, a much bigger force than I. It took the, the United States government to <laughs> <pushed laughs> me off. So, I my games got raided in 2011. The feds seized all my assets in what's called asset forfeiture, and, and, and in that type of forfeiture, they don't have to prove that that you're guilty. Um, they just take it. And then if you want to go sue them or fight that to get it back, you can. But by this point I was making my money illegally. So I really didn't have a, a leg to stand on, um, you know, for, for seven years, I did it legally and then turned the corner. Um, and then two years later, unbeknownst to me, I thought, you know, cause my attorneys had spoken to the, the, the government and they said, look, we're not coming after her right now. You know, we'll let you know if something changes. And two years later, after living with my mom and my grandmother in the mountains of Colorado up at 9,000 feet where there's really no way to get into trouble even if you wanted to, I got arrested in the middle of the night by 17 FBI agents holding machine guns and high beam flashlights. And they put this piece of paper in front of me that said the United States of America versus Molly Bloom. and That was just a moment.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. So, okay. Give me your feelings at that moment. You said it's a moment. Like, are you terrified? Are you upset and angry? Like what's your feeling in that moment?
3: Okay. Well, my feeling in that moment. So I had this dog, this beagle that was my soulmate and she lived to be 21 and she lived for food. And I was like, I need to figure out how Lucy's going to get fed. Cause she has this special food that needs to be heated up. And shout out to the Los Angeles FBI because this really nice lady prepared her food for me. Oh my god! <laughs> so that was like my priority number one. And then, and then they took me to jail and they put me in this cell and I'm shackled and handcuffed and I'm like, how long am I going to be here and why am I here? You know? Because if you're if you're out of the game for two years and you don't hear anything, right? It, it's like all of a sudden you have wandered into the twilight zone. And, I, and then I was more scared than I've ever been in my whole life and also more confused. You know, I was running a game of Texas Hold'em. I always thought at some point cops would come into the room, you know, maybe someone would reach out to my attorney. But 17 FBI agents, yeah, machine guns, middle of the night, stuff you see like in big drug busts and, and you know, like terrorist organizations, like it was crazy.
1: So you found a good lawyer who took on your case and is played by Idris Elba in the movie. Yep. And, you know, it really seems like this person helped save you and, and navigate you through all of this.
3: No question. I went to him. I didn't have any money for a retainer. Um, He worked at one of the most prestigious criminal defense firms in, in New York city. And he was a former federal prosecutor with an amazing reputation with the government, which was, critical for me, you know, because mm-hmm. to have, it, I, I think it was really important to not, not that I could have afforded these people to not get one of these hotshot lawyers that's constantly getting people off, but to get someone who has integrity and and who's trusted, you know, and and Jim Walden was that person and he took on my case and just navigated it beautifully and championed me, you know, and, and I've, like, I've never felt like such a – I've never felt so ashamed, so humiliated, like such a piece of crap in my life. And to have somebody with the the sort of like the integrity and dignity of Jim Walden fighting for you was, was incredible and, and was restorative.
1: So at the end, they basically – you know, you pled guilty. And, you know, Jim and others were, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you protecting these people and their names and their reputations and their stories who played in these high stakes games? And I give you a lot of credit for that because there's a lot of people that would have thrown them under the bus to save their own rear end. And in yeah. the end, the judge says, look, <laughs> she doesn't. He, I mean, I love the line in the movie. There's people a uh, stone's throw from here in Wall Street that are doing much worse than this. You know, why mm-hmm. are we going to take it out on, on this woman here. And I think that was exactly the right thing to do. But I mean, when that decision comes down, you probably just, it was the, probably the biggest sense of relief ever.
3: Oh my God. I lost my, I lost my feet, you know? Yeah. I I mean, I really thought I was going to prison because the prosecutors really wanted me to become a confidential informant Hmm. and they're willing to give money back and keep me out of jail and, and all these things. And, and, I turned it down, and, and they weren't happy about that. And so, generally, what happens is sentencing is based on the prosec- prosecutor's recommend, you know, recommendation. And I really thought that I was going to jail, prison. Everyone did. Everyone in my family, I think, even Jim, thought that there was a good chance. And so, you know, that whole year I spent trying to mentally prepare. Okay, I'm going to learn a new language. I'm going to get a my business degree. Whatever. You know, you're trying to figure out how you can survive losing your freedom. And so I'm just standing there hoping that it's not a big number. And and when, and when Judge Furman, you know, kind of made his decision, I was, I, you know, I lost my feet. Like I just couldn't believe it. And yeah, it was such a huge relief. I mean, listen, losing your money sucks. I, I logged into my bank account. It read negative $9,999,999. That was a terrible day. It is nothing compared to the idea of losing your freedom nothing
1: okay so i've got to ask and and like i've had michael vick on this show and you know yeah. michael vick was making 120 million dollars was the face of the nfl and yeah. i asked him like you're laying in your bed in prison night one what's going through your head so when you what look is, at your bank question? account yeah when you look at your bank account and it says negative <laughs> 9.9 million dollars oh my god molly yeah how do you, I mean, I I would be paralyzed with fear, but like you said, at least you're not losing your freedom and going to prison.
3: No, it was a devastating moment. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, what helped me, I think, deal with it is I got sober, I went to rehab and I got sober and I got my life back, um, to some degree, you know, I was, and then, you know, I, I, what I would always say to myself is like, you did it once, you can do it again. You can make money again you know but to to have that sort of like feeling of being back in control of yourself and not not dependent on substances and and not dependent on the 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 fickle whims of whether a gambler is going to pay you and all that chaos you know in so many ways i got that and i was living in colorado again so um you know that made it easier and and then just also having that growth mindset having that mindset of like Okay, it's
1: just money. We can make it again, you know. Yeah. Well, again, I give you so much credit for your resilience because a lot of people wouldn't have had that attitude. So, I want to ask you about the movie because yeah. I've I've heard different things about it. Um, I heard it was not an easy thing to get made because the government wasn't thrilled that this movie was going to get made. But eventually, Aaron Sorkin says, "All right." I'll make it. They cast Jessica Chastain to play your role, Kevin Costner, Idris Elba. It's a fantastic movie. But how do you go from I write the book to trying to get the movie made?
3: When I, you know, after I got sentenced and I realized I wasn't going to jail, there was a moment of massive relief. And then it was like, but now the work starts because Mm -hmm. I'm 35 years old. I'm millions of dollars in debt. I'm a social pariah. You know, this had been all over the tabloids painting these pictures of me that we're less than flattering I'm a convicted felon you know like now the work starts how do you come back from that and I went home and kind of you know got into an entrepreneurial mindset and and thought like okay it's the story you know the story is the monetizable asset the story can has the potential to do reputational repair it has the potential to garner a large sum of money that could at least start to address this financial burden. And so I wrote the book and then I took it to Hollywood and I was getting a ton of meetings and I was getting an amazing response in the room and then everyone would just pass. And finally, I asked someone straight up, "What? why, why does this happen? Why do you look so engaged and then pass a couple of weeks later? And he said, you know, there are a lot of really powerful people in D.C., in Los Angeles, in New York City, that don't want this movie to get made, and they are running interference on it. And you know that was pretty daunting, <laughs> but you know there's something incredible about survival mode. You're just absolutely fearless, hmm. and um, so it's just like, all right, back to the drawing board. Like, what's what's the mer- more mercenary plan? Like, what's how do I how do I outwit this, right? Through, from all my meetings, I realized that every, in every meeting, they're like, well, this is, this is all about finding the right writer. You know, this is all about finding like the, the, the prolific writer. And so I made this short list of writers and directors who really, I, I didn't think have to play politics in Hollywood. And if you could get them creatively engaged, you had a really good chance of cutting through all that muck. And Aaron Sorkin was on the top of that list for me. He's my favorite writer, you know, starting with A Few Good Men and Social Network and The West Wing. And, you know, if you look at Aaron Storkin's track record and you're making a bet, which anytime you're doing business, you are, he's an excellent bet. And so I started trying to get a meeting with him and it was not easy. And I, I got the meeting and I, I remember walking into that meeting, like my legs are shaking, but I have my the best game face I can muster. And I tell him my story and I'm trying to like feign confidence and not act like my life is as (laughs) freaking destroyed as it is. Oh my God. Like I'm not living with my mom at 35 years. (laughs) (laughs) And when I was done, he said something so hilarious. He looked at me like just deadpan and he was like, well, I'll tell you one thing, kid. I've never met someone so down on their luck and so full of themselves.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. That's quite a line.
3: Well, he's, he's, he's got a lot of them, you know, he's just, he's a, he's a wordsmith, but, um, but yeah, you you know, and, and that's like the quintessential story of like, you gotta fake it till you make it, you know, you gotta just stay in the game and believe in yourself, even when there's maybe nothing to believe in, you know?
1: I thought Jessica Chastain did a great job playing you. How much time did you spend with her to prepare her for that role?
3: You know, not, not that much. a, a couple days, but I think what, and she's brilliant and, and so talented, but I think it was her brilliance and interpretation of the character. But also I spent a lot of time with Aaron, a lot of time with Aaron on that, uh, working on that, you know, working on the script. And then he was also the director. So he had gotten super familiar with the sort of the way that I speak, the cadence. Mm-hmm. Um, and And so I think between the two of them, I mean, it was so weird sitting in that theater because <laughs> I was like, whoa, that's kind of me. It's really strange.
1: Yeah, I mean, just listening to you talk right now, it, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you and Jessica sound alike as far as how I she know. spoke in the movie playing you.
3: It's so weird. Yeah, it is.
1: That's remarkable. Okay, so I've got to ask you, there's a scene in the movie and it's Jessica Chastain and Kevin Costner, who plays yeah. your dad, sitting in Central Park. Yep. And he says, look, you know, he's a psychologist. I'm going to drill this down to a three-minute session. <laughs> yes. And he drills it down and basically describes you and and how you got to be feeling the way that you are. And I thought it was a brilliant scene. Did that really take place in real life?
3: So the event took place in real life, and it took place in California, not Central Park. Okay. Um, it took place on the beach, so it was still somewhat cinematic. Mm-hmm. Um, And... Some of my dad's answers were different, and the one that I think is most noteworthy is, you know, I'd lived under this assumption that was very painful—that my dad liked my brothers better than he liked me. Mm-hmm. And I think part of my motivation to go out and to make waves was to, you know, sort of satiate that. Um, that was something that was just very painful to me, and and I and I, I lived with it every day, and I I wanted to change it.
1: When he said to you like i love you and and you know reassured you of his love for you that had to have really been a big moment for you
3: well it was a big moment for me and then he described and then he he told me why he was like well first of all he's like i many times i liked your brothers better than i liked you because you were a pain in the butt which i was (laughs) (laughs) he said but I love you so much and the same. And I was harder on you than I was on them because I think the world is a tough place and I think it's tougher for women. And so it all made, it started to all make sense, you know, Hmm. why he was the way he was. And I saw my dad for the 30 year old man who's trying to figure out how to raise a daughter and trying to figure out how to make her tough, you know?
1: Yeah. All right. We've got a few minutes left. I could talk to you for literally hours, but I know you probably have. (laughs) Other things to do. You've got some new projects coming up. Torched is a new podcast. Torched, and it debuts this week on podcast platforms everywhere. Tell us about this project because it looks really unique. I don't think I've seen anything like this.
3: Yeah, it's cool. It's It premieres January 18th. And my partners are SiriusXM, Stitcher, and Film Nation, and then Gilded Audio is the producer, and they're great. And we're telling stories about Olympic scandals and controversies, but we're really going in deep. You know, we're like talking to the people that were involved, we're talking to experts. I am endlessly fascinated with this sort of intersection of human ambition, high stakes, and the human condition. And and seeking to understand what motivates people to make bad decisions or to walk into danger or whatever you know and and so it, it's very entertaining it's got it's got politics it's got world affairs you know it has all these dynamics because it's the olympics but it's also got a lot of humanity because we get to talk to people who have had 10 20 years of time to process it and kind of understand why
1: can you give us any kind of a teaser as to like some of the yeah. topics that you might cover?
3: Yeah, no, these, these stories are incredible. I mean, we were, we're, I got to sit down with, uh, Greg Louganis hmm. and, you know, Greg dove at the, Greg's the greatest diver to ever live. And he went to the Olympics and, um, HIV positive, and And at that time that was, you know, pe- pe- that, uh, culturally we we treated those people like lepers. And but he wanted to, you know, he wanted to realize his last Olympics. And so and he dove and hit his head and there's blood in the pool. And he had to make this decision, do I dive again and do I tell anyone? And he didn't tell anyone for years, including the doctor that stitched him up, who didn't wear gloves, who was a good friend of his. And Mm. and so and he's hiding the fact that he's gay and he's hiding the fact that he has HIV and then he just can't take it anymore. And so I think it was like ten years later. I can't remember the time frame, but um, he comes out and, and he gets really candid with us and talks talks us through that. And then there's you know Boris Anoshenko who figured out how to electrically hotwire his sword. Oh my god! So, yeah, so he like could win this this one of the divisions of the um, in his sport, which he was a pentathlete. So I mean, it, or the 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 72 basketball Munich game in which the the Americans were just robbed. Like it was, the, it's the biggest upset in basketball history, and have to this day refused to take that silver medal. It's in their will that no one can take it. So, you know, we're just telling these crazy stories, and we're getting to speak to these people who've had a whole, you know, who've who sort of like are very open, and and that's that's what we're looking for. Is we're looking for people who are not gonna gloss over it, but who are gonna go deep with us,
1: which. Really, is people like you, right? I mean, you're kind of <laughs> yeah. interviewing people who have the same kind of mentality and, and attitude that you have, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think life is more interesting that way.
1: Right. All right. So you have another book coming out too, I hear, That's called you. Powerful. Right.
3: Yeah. Um. And you know what? What I've found, the world's going the world brings everyone to their knees. It's constantly changing. It's full of tragedy it's hard to manage. Um, It's also beautiful and exciting and adventurous. And I think what we need more than anything to get through it and to thrive is this ability to to have power. I'm not not talking about like power over nations. I'm talking about this power over our instincts, over our emotions, over our thoughts, over our mindset, um, over our addictions. You know, the power to, to walk into a room and know who you are and the power to walk out of a room when, that, when it's time to do that, and there's a lot of discourse about power, about how to like overpower people and things, but truly, you know, it, it's about that inner power. And so it's everything I've learned from poker, athletics, and then especially being rock bottom and having nothing, no one coming to save you, no opportunities, and 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 figuring out how to find that true raw inner power. And it's it's really it's a practical book um, about sort of the, the measures that I think people can take and, and kind of a, a program they can have for themselves. And it's a really important story for me to tell.
1: I'll tell you what I cannot wait to read it. If there's anyone in this world qualified to write that book, it's you.
3: <laughs> when does it come out? I you know I'm I'm doing a a docu series uh, along with it and a podcast. So there's a couple moving parts and I'm about to have a a, a little human. (laughs) So I don't know. I think like maybe 12 months, maybe a year, maybe in a year. Okay. Well,
1: look, Molly, you are an amazing person. Uh, (laughs) I, like I said, I don't know that I've ever talked to anyone in 18 years of doing this show that has a story like yours. Your resilience is to be admired. Um, you know, your mentality of just overcoming and getting to the next thing and being successful at everything that you do is admirable. And, you know, I just appreciate you making the time to uh, join me here on Sports Business Radio. Like I said, we could talk for hours, but, uh, know. you know, I'm sure you have other things to do.
3: Well, I'm panting a little bit because my like lungs are in my throat <laughs> <laughs> but, but I could under normal circumstances we I could chat with you forever too. I just might not be able to breathe. <laughs> so do you know
1: boy girl yet or are you waiting?
3: Yeah, no, it's it's a little girl.
1: Oh my gosh. Congratulations. So like Thank I said, I have too. a daughter. So uh You do. Yeah. It's uh you're blessed and uh, you know, I'm I'm very, very happy for you. I've read your stories of, you know, I know this wasn't an easy path for you. <laughs> oh, so I'm oh. so happy that uh but you know No surprise, right? Like you overcame and you figured out a way to make it happen. And and here you are.
3: I'm ready for things to be a little bit easier, though.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what's not going to be easier is you're not going to be sleeping a whole lot. So
0: that's what I hear.
1: Yeah, you better you better try and get some sleep now because you won't be getting very much sleep after (laughs) your daughter is born.
3: It'll be like back to the poker days.
1: Exactly. Well, Molly Bloom, author, podcaster, entrepreneur. Check out her new podcast, Torched, on podcast platforms everywhere. Look for her book, Powerful, in about 12 months. And I can't wait to read that. And Molly, just the best of success to you moving forward. And thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Thanks,
3: Brian. It was a pleasure.
1: 5G is here. Is your stadium ready? From an immersive fan experience to efficient game day operations, 5G is transforming sports and entertainment. If you're ready to jumpstart your 5G transformation, look no further than Boingo Wireless. Boingo is one of the largest operators of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. They provide stadiums and arenas with state-of-the-art 5G networks and support teams across the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, and NCAA. I'm constantly interacting with sports executives, And the reason they love working with Boingo is because Boingo manages 5G and Wi-Fi networks end-to-end, offloading very stretched IT teams. Whether your stadium is looking to support mobile ticketing, cashless payment, or connected operations, Boingo has you covered. But don't just take it from me. Their customers include world-class venues like Soldier Field, State Farm Arena, Petco Park, and University of Louisville. Boingo in 5G, now that's what I call a win-win. For a limited time, Boingo has a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. They're offering a free 5G assessment for your stadium or arena. To get started, simply email sbradio at boingo.com and mention this podcast. That's sbradio at boingo.com. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our team at Sports Business Radio, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Ryan Nakajima, and our friends at CG Sports who power Sports Business Radio, CG Young, Matt Amerlin, Nicole Wardle, and Calvin Wirtz. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio.